Hello, and thanks for tuning in to our fifth episode of Fintech for the People, Season 2. Fintech for the People is brought to you by Axion Venture Lab, a global early-stage investor in inclusive fintech startups around the world. As always, I'm Ami Parbu, your host and managing partner of Axion Venture Lab. In this season, we're showcasing the founders of six companies in our portfolio that are all finding ways to bridge the $5 trillion financing gap to small businesses by using embedded finance. As we've talked about, embedded finance is the way financial services are offered seamlessly in everyday experiences for consumers and small businesses. Last week, we chatted with Michael Moreland, CEO and co-founder of Field Intelligence, about how they're making the pharmaceutical supply chain radically simple, affordable, and effective across Africa. For this episode, we decided to bring back a conversation from season one, where we talked with Susie Ferreira, CEO of Ginny. We're thrilled about the company's embedded finance infrastructure solution that serves small businesses in Brazil, and we'd love to share again with this audience the solution Ginny is offering. We're excited to have you with us today, Susie. So super excited to be here with you, Ami, today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Of course. Well, before we dive in, tell us more about your background. Have you always been entrepreneurial and seen yourself starting a company? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, I'd say probably I had this uh, this entrepreneurial DNA, right? I think most people coming from Brazil do have that, and not because they choose to, but probably because we are. It's the nature of being Brazilian, right? You have to you have to reinvent your own life. You have there are so many struggles. It's a country that obviously, despite ha- despite having so much wealth and like resources and everything, there is a lot of difficulties as well economically. So as, as a Brazilian, you always have to, to, to work towards building something. I did go in the path uh, initially in the more like career path, right? Having gone to university, I did a, lo- a law degree, actually. I had this idea that I wanted to make social justice, and I thought law was the, the vehicle for me to achieve that. But then within the, the law studies, I realized I was always inclined towards business, banking, financial services. Uh, I went on to do a master's at UCL in London, and then I specialized in international finance law. So I ended up just always getting more like the business side of law. So I was thinking of this career, right? I always had this dream of working in the largest businesses around the world, being very like um, like a, a global citizen and an executive. But what I found myself within those companies, so I worked for Santander, I worked for ICB, all the largest banks in the world, but I found myself always trying to be the entrepreneur inside a big company. I always carved that position, but it was difficult. And again, going back to that background of being a Brazilian and seeing like, you know, myself, my family, we were always entrepreneurial. Like my father was an entrepreneur. He owned or he built like more than 10 different types of businesses, like from agricultural businesses to like water infrastructure, to radio stations, to food businesses, to gas stations, like building real estate, everything you can think of, my father has done. So I watched obviously very close. I was part of that journey of seeing him building small businesses in Brazil, being such a hero, you know, but so many struggles. So then I'm in these massive banks. I'm like working the biggest companies in the world, very global citizen, but within myself, there's this empty gap. 
I knew, you know, it wasn't my place, that I needed to be an entrepreneur because there were all these things that I knew that I've learned and I had this mission and ambition. I knew I could do it. So then eventually I made the leap of faith. That's great. And and what a remarkable, you know, experience to see your father build these businesses. What what drew you, what interested you in the financial services sector? You mentioned working for a lot of these larger financial institutions. What, what, what did you work on previously and how did you eventually draw the line back to Brazil and to the needs of small businesses? I was always drawn to the business side, as, as I said, even during the law degrees, right? And then when I landed my first internship, I landed in securitization at the time of the crisis. It was 2008. The world is collapsing because of credit, right? And credit that wasn't understood because they built all these very complex structures. And at the end of the day, the, the end consumer, you know, the normal people were paying for the mistakes and the greed of banks. But anyway, I landed the job right there in, in the heart of financial services in the most questionable time for financial services. And to be honest, I was very much focused on Europe because I, I was living in London. But then my heart was in Brazil, my knowledge in Brazil, and I know that the biggest problem were in emerging markets, right? So I started actually collating all of that knowledge. You know, I, every time there was something different to be done within the bank, I would raise my hands. How do we use finance to leverage the growth of those companies? How do you even run a bank? You know, because I always wanted to participate in everything. But after doing that, I realized that you know, we could actually be a bridge between capital, knowledge, and technology from mature markets in Brazil. So I saw this opportunity. Let's leverage what I already learned from here and the connections I made here and the capital access that I have here, and let's bring it to Brazil. So that was the, the thinking. Another point that I always raise that is very important is how I perceive money, right? When I was small, I thought money was a little bit of a negative thing. And as I grew and became more mature, I started accepting the power of capital. And that power for me was less about having the money and more about how can we use capital to influence the world, to make big impact. Yep, definitely agree with that here at Venture Lab as well, of the power of capital to have impact. So let's turn to Ginny. Uh, what exactly does the company do? And, and tell us about that journey to, to start the company. So as you mentioned, uh, we work with SMBs, micro and small and medium businesses in Brazil, and uh, we provide them with very easy and fast and accessible capital connected into platforms. So these small businesses are already, we are dealing with large platforms in Brazil, e-commerce platforms, marketplaces. We are integrating to those platforms and we allow small businesses that are already connected there to reach capital like in a very fast, frictionless, frictionless way. For us, it's very important that we partner with these platforms because that's where we get to know the customer. So we don't actually have to go out in the market to acquire businesses. These businesses have already been acquired by the platforms. They are already operating the platforms and they are generating a ton of data. That's where they sell their products, that's where they manage their logistics. And why not, we thought, why not use those ecosystems, extremely rich ecosystems to build the bank of the future? So the idea came around this invisible bank. You know, like how, how can we actually transform them in the sense that these ecosystems, these marketplaces become the branch of the bank and we plug in the bank as, as a capital provider as opposed to the, the interface and the product with the customer. 
And that is, for us, it's all about the customer, right? Because we want the customer to have the best experience. I tend to say that what we're trying to do is to shake, to reposition the bargaining power from the hands of the banks to the hands of SMBs. And we can do that through this technology and through this different approach of making platforms the bank. So much of what you're talking about is sort of what we talk about now in the industry is embedded finance. And that's a fairly new term, but it's been gaining a lot of attention recently. For our listeners who aren't familiar with the concept, can you tell us what this means? And and to your point of being customer focused, what advantages it really gives a customer over those traditional financial institutions? Yes, it's. Uh, I, I love the fact that embedded financing kind of exploded. You know, the whole um, the whole concept became so trendy, and suddenly everybody was talking about it. Because when we started in, in the end of two thousand and eighteen. We were obviously pitching this idea, right, of having platforms. We're going to be connected to the platforms and all the bank is going to happen embedded. Oh, we didn't use the word embedded. We, we would say they would experience financial products within the platform and so on. And eventually, uh, I think was towards the end of 2019, the term was getting quite big. So the whole thing was very good for us because suddenly solidified our vision, right? Okay, we're, we're not crazy here. There is, there is a big market here. There is a massive opportunity. So what it means is instead of uh, if you are, let's say, an SMB, a small business, and traditionally you would be operating independently, your finances would be independent from, from your core business, right? You're, you would be selling your products, you manage your people, and you, you would have like this independent place where you run your, your finances and you go to. You would actually have to walk to a bank, you would have to walk with paperwork and, you know, try to open an account. And even to open an account is extremely hard. Even today, I struggle with struggle that Jeannie various times. And it requires all the paperwork, all the bureaucracy, and so on. So we thought, actually, what if they can, because they already operate in those platforms, the platform already knows them. So KYC has already been done. The platform already knows which products they sell, how much they are spending. There is all this 360-degree view of this SMB. Why not use that to streamline completely the process so they can open an account instantly, they can access products instantly, frictionless. So they experience the product in the context of their business. And the product is tailored to the specific characteristics of that small business. And this is super powerful. So we're not only talking about incredible convenience, super fast process, but also cheaper products. Because if you have the data, if you understand them, the risk is lower. And also you're able to then size the size of limits or the interest rate to the affordability of this particular customer. So for them, it's a no-brainer. They don't have to do anything. The banking banking services are going to happen within that context. It's going to be convenient, fast, and way cheaper for them. So it's a complete transformation for businesses. Which these platforms love as well, right? I mean, it it creates for them such a win-win proposition of being able to do more business on, on the platforms than they were able to before. Absolutely. We, we always say it's a win, win, win. Everybody wins in this equation. I kind of got this thinking as well from the 2008 experience back then when banks were being questioned, reputation was being questioned. A lot of fintechs started to appear back then, actually in 2008. Uh, in London, I, I remember the movement. And for for me, it was this concept. 
it's no longer about relationship banking. It's about partnership banking. This is what I want to bring to market. I want SMBs to really feel they have a partner. And you can only be a partner if you know each other, you understand each other, you are there for the good and for the bad times. So it's not just about a relationship, like historical, traditional uh, banking relationship, which means, oh, when they say relationship banking, it means cross-sell. And I know because I was a banker. So it means, okay, you've got you've to find a way of locking in the customer and try to sell as much as possible, as many products as possible to that uh, SMB. That's the opposite of what we're doing. We actually don't want to sell what they don't need because that's going to destroy the entire value proposition and, and the long-term future with Genie as well. So for us, it's how can we partner with SMBs? So tell us more about the small businesses you ultimately are a partner to. What sort of businesses use Ginny's services? So we have two profiles. We are able, in our proposition, we have focused on the SMB at the center. And that means we don't mind if you're an SMB that is buying or selling products because we're designing this digital credit account from which if you are a small business buying from a platform like uh, inventory financing, you're going to be able to use a Gini credit. And Gini credit, by the way, will be embedded in that platform as a payment method. So it'll be a very fast way for you to pay installments. So this is, let, let's say, our buy now, pay later solution for SMBs. But if you are a small business, for instance, that you are in a food delivery uh, platform and you're selling all your products there and we are seeing that we are seeing how your your sales are evolving and we're able to based on that sale give you extra cash like an overdraft right so you can use for paying your employees or you can open a new shop or to make investments that will help you grow then our solution is embedded in the wallet of, of that particular platform. So depending on how we integrate, depending on the type of platform, we're gonna have a, a product configuration that will be different. But the core of it is the account, is having this digital credit account that capital is accessible wherever they are at point of need. These effective partnerships with the platforms are so critical to the success of, of your business. And we know that you all, your team has done quite a bit of work to really refine how you build a value proposition for these platforms, how you prioritize partners, and also how then you efficiently onboard partners. What have you learned about how to secure these big B2B partnerships and how do you make them work in the long term? The way we thought about this was a risky way. I mean, I remember some investors were pushing, are you sure like as a startup, you just want to, you want to go straight away selling to the, the unicorns? And we are thinking, actually, these guys think like us. They are platforms, they are technology. They also are looking at massive growth. They have the momentum, they have the this incentive to grow. So and we thought uh, instead of fighting for acquiring customers in the open seas and the open market, huge cap, why not partner with them, right? So, and also I have a B2B background. That's what I did my entire life in banking was based on very large customers. So for me, it was actually more natural to develop those partnerships, right? And we made it in a way that we have to be aligned. If you are a platform and all you want is to extract as much as possible of, from SMBs because they are already connected in your platform, you just want to make more money, likely you're not a good partner for Genie. We're good partners when incentives are, are aligned. So those platforms that actually we, we believe in our growth, 
because we are going to help SMBs to grow and we're going to devise products that will solve real pain points as opposed to just trying to get more money out of them. So having this alignment in, in vision and alignment in mission and also the alignment on growth has helped us quite a lot to secure the right partnerships. And you also need to make it simple, simple for them to start, right? Uh, if you're talking about integrations on day one, that is quite risky because one, there is a massive investment that go, goes into even the decision-making of building something or dealing with another partner and then invest infrastructure, technology teams, and so on. All of that can become like an obstacle to closing a partnership. So we have this no-code approach where we, we run an MVP and there is no coding necessary because we can utilize all of our infrastructure. We do, we use some of their infrastructure, some of our infrastructure. We have both brands together. And then once we've proven the concept and we can prove the traction and they say, actually, this is something I want and I can see tangible results, then we start an iterative approach for integration. And again, even when we get into the integration layer or the integration stage, we're talking about iterating it. So we start from places where there will be the highest value for the SMB, the highest value for the platform, and the highest value for Gini. For instance, SMBs love the fact that they don't have to share any of their data. You know, They don't have to give us anything. They, they will just be pre-approved instantly. We offer them inside the platform. They don't have to do anything. And that's because we're already integrated to the platform and we're receiving all the relevant data that helps us underwriting. Also, they don't want to bother so much with repayment. They have made their provisions. They know how much they borrow and they have like a dashboard and they want this to be deducted directly from their revenues. So then we provide an integration for that as well. And then later on, we started to integrate other layers to be fully embedded in the platform. That's great. Yeah, so many of the challenges we've seen in the past with B2B partnerships and, and, and scaling them is change management. It's it's coming down to how do you bring partners on board to a change or a new product. And, and I really love the thoughtful approach you all have taken to bring people on board, to bring teams on board and show that value over time. Um, sh- shifting gears, one, one challenge that we've seen for early stage fintech companies is securing the debt capital uh, that's needed to achieve lending goals. What has that process been like for you all? And, and do you have any tips for other entrepreneurs on a similar journey? Yes, I remember like funds and particularly in the U.S., they were very worried about that in the very early stages. But also, on the other hand, Brazilian market is a market super mature in terms of the securitization deals. And we have a very engaged and like a very engaged private market. They are investors that are looking for higher yields. So they're investing in like privately through these funding structures in Brazil. So not necessarily we needed to like, you know, convince a massive fund of you know, in the very early beginning, we could prove the concept by just going to these private investors, raising small rounds, let's say a million dollars, and maybe start with 500 and then grow that to a million and then grow a little bit more. And once you've proven the traction with those private investors, then you go and talk to a fund. So, so we didn't have, everything was, again, iterative, but we're basically starting small, showing traction, learning taking that traction to a fund and then selling the idea. So I would say my, my, my advice is you've got to be patient, right? And you've got to show skin on the game and you've got to 
get it out there, iterate, learn, show the learnings, and then you go bigger. And then our first attempt with uh, with an investor, it was like straightforward. It took a little while to set up that, that funding structure and to actually then move all the portfolio across to the fund. So there were difficulties there. And that's when you need to have an amazing team with you. And I was very lucky to have Vinicius. Having done that before for Yabo, so Sherpa and so on, he also brought the experience and Daniel as well. So I brought these guys to, to actually make that happen. Actually, staying with the team you've built, we know that strong culture is so critical for startups to compete in a really competitive talent market, especially in in your region right now. Um, how would you describe Ginny's culture and and how have you built that, you know, as you continue to grow and, and bring on new employees? Culture is is a tough one, right? And I say I, I tend to say and to think that culture starts from from the founders. So I have I have a very direct approach. And sometimes, you know, it's people think that's not very Brazilian. We talk about this extreme transparency, obsessive about communicating, extreme ownership, being very bold. So I think it started with me being like that. And so, yeah, so in terms of culture, it's not that I want to impose a certain culture, but it does come with founders, right? And as long as they know the reason of being direct and being this extreme ownership and extreme transparency is to get this vision to be to, to become reality and to get our mission, which is the most important. If you're not bold enough, you're not going to be able to change the world, I believe. So this is very important right now is that we are bold and that we push hard forward because there are only obstacles on the way. There are lots of amazing things, but there are so many obstacles. So you have to be so resilient. And so this, having this uh, mindset and this culture really does help us achieve our goals. But also what is super interesting is that I also brought people with very different culture and different ways of doing it. Andrea, for instance, my co-founder, you know her, she has the heart of the size of the universe, right? And she's the most caring and supportive human being. So she brings all of this to offset some of my characteristics and complement each other in that sense, right? And I think opening up this space for these other faces with this other culture to, to complement yours is very important. Oh, and by the way, another point of culture that is super cool that Andrea brings to the team, she's super positive. She only sees the positive. The world can be collapsing. You only see the positive. So this brings this real sense of family, you know, caring, we are here together and life is beautiful and we're having a great time. So that's how we do things. And then we brought in Vinicius as well because two ladies there, right? Uh, which is quite unheard of in a FinTech, two ladies founders. We brought in Vinicius to also offset a little bit of the balance. And again, he is very similar to us in the sense that he's always smiling, always happy and huge drive, but a very big heart as well. So I'd like to say as pushy and hardcore sort of team we are to get things done. We also have this culture of being very caring and very warm towards people. 
Great. Well, thank you, Susie, so much for this conversation, for sharing more about your journey, about Ginny, about you know your vision for the future. It's been an incredible conversation. Venture Lab is excited to be in this journey with you, and uh, we're excited for the future. Thank you so much, Emmy. Thank you. With that, our fifth episode comes to an end, but we still have one more to go. We'll hear from the founder of Cash and Voice next week, Srinivas Kasser, who's building an embedded digital marketplace to unlock supply chain finance for small businesses in India. Most of the small businesses, they struggle you know, to raise financing based on their own financial strength as they really don't fit the criteria laid down by the banks. But they, when, when they trade with a party which is better, better rated uh, as compared to them, the transaction itself becomes finance worthy with a lower perceived risk.